Are you looking for a good rock and roll book? Do you watch a ton of rock and roll documentaries like me? Well, that's why I started the Rock Talk Studio podcast, to be the place to go for previews, reviews, and recommendations on rock and roll books, documentaries, and movies. Every first Tuesday of the month, the Rock Talk Studio gets you caught up on all the latest and points out where to go for the good stuff. Every 15-minute podcast explores the world of rock and roll books, docs, and movies from every possible angle to leave you with a no-doubt decision on where to spend your time and money. Fan or just casual fan, or maybe you're on the fence and you're looking for something new to check out, either way, I got you covered. Bonus episodes features interviews with talent like New York Times bestselling author Alan Paul, who just came on the show to discuss his new Almond Brothers book, Brothers and Sisters. Join me, Big Rick, every first Tuesday of the month as I host the Rock Talk Studio podcast, the ultimate review of rock and roll books, documentaries, and movies. Don't go to sleep, mother. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You've lost half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, what's up? It's Brian. And hey, it's Murdoch. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Recently on the show, we told you this story about Suzanne Vega and how her career was reinvented via a very circuitous route that I really like talking about, which was a comp. It was was a comp. uh, I guess it was a vinyl record at the time. Now we think of those things. They were CDs, comp CDs. uh, And then, you know, now we have playlists and that sort of thing. But a musical compilation project can be a game changer. Yeah, and I had that on CD, so it did exist. Many of you did reach out with comments, and thanks a whole bunch, by the way. I'm glad that you liked the episode and uh, were interested in it. Um, And we wanted to talk about comps that changed a career or even a label or a genre. Well, and this helped us uncover some more interesting stories. And I know, which is I know why you come here. You're pumped about this one because we're going back to the same time period as Suzanne Vega, which is early '80s, '82. But we're going to a very different type of music today, and it's it's a type of music that I feel you have a real affinity for. That's correct. It's metal. That's what we're here for. <laughs> I never know how much how much sour cream you're going to put on the mashed potatoes. You know what I mean? Like I, I don't know. <laughs> I thought, and it's I, butter. It's I, butter. I like it. It's butter. what we put on the sour cream. All right. Uh, butter on the mashed potatoes. Sorry. So okay, this story is also great for you because it involves uh, people named Brian, and uh, it involves Sweden. So like all your favorite things in one story: metal, Brian, yes. Sweden. Yeah, things that I that I like. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're going way pre-internet here, but, but we're going to talk about this guy, Brian, who gets into music in the 70s, uh, early 80s while he's in high school, and he gets into tape trading. Yes, and tape trading is something that I know a little about because I'm a tad older. So <laughs> I straight up ordered uh, bootleg cassettes and then traded with other people, but I definitely a lot. I spent a lot of um, income um, as a young person ordering cassettes from this catalog and it was in canada like the made-up girl you felt you felt like big and, shit too right like yeah your money was leaving I, the country well the other thing was at one point i was like do you want a um do you want like the seven night stand of led zeppelin at the la forum in 1977 because i have all seven nights on cassette <laughs> like i had all that shit and then so i did cool, find man. out i did find out that like motley and like Kiss and all those guys just did the same show every night. 
Like that's when I was yeah. like, oh yeah, I remember you telling me this. You told me this a long time ago that that's how you figured out like that a lot of bands had like a set thing that they did right. And I, I you still, I mean, there's a lot of people who still think about this one way or the other, right? Like they think a band plays the same set every night or they think a band plays a totally different set every night, but it really varies and usually by different degrees depending on the band and the scene and all that stuff. But I always, I I found that really interesting that that's where you got that from. A couple of interesting side notes about tape trading. One is this idea of the honor system, right? Like you you couldn't enter that world without something to offer of your own. Uh, your own region or scene or recommendation, you had to you had to have something that you were going to give the people. You couldn't just be a taker, right? It's like those little libraries that are popping up in a lot of cities now, where you put a book in, but right. you can take a book out, but you got to put a book in, and it all runs on the honor system. So, were you ever? Uh, did you ever have to deal with the the rip off traders? Like that was the term, right? If you weren't yes. sending tapes back, I got I had a rip off trader incident. I can't remember what it was, but I remember like you know you're a very young person and that happens to you and you send off something and then you get nothing. Yeah. And it's like, what do you do? It's not like you can go and the new phone books here and like go and call, figure out how to call them in the city right. that they have no idea where they're at because there's no internet. Yeah. So it's a total but, risk but the whole time. It was a total risk, but um, there were tape trading places that were safe places where you talk to other people or, pen pal with other people yeah. and that's that's how it made it safer you at least met people yeah to try to like suss out is this person going to be good or bad etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah that's interesting yeah. so I, you know another thing about tape trading that a lot of people don't know is that there's a component of this that was not only a precursor to internet and file sharing which is really sort of what this is right now we all tape trade on the internet to a certain right. degree especially you know in the Napster period that's sort of what that was right and that was a lot of the justification for that it's like well we used to do this but then you were using the studio recordings and the, you know there was more legalese involved et cetera et cetera but the other thing that this was a precursor for is podcasting in a lot of ways because folks from one radio market might trade tapes of their local radio show and send it to someone in another part of the country or in another part of the world who obviously couldn't get that uh, distributed via radio waves. So yeah, that's that's, that's sort of a cool thing too. That's how you you know people started to hear about what radio sounded like in other parts of the country. And we talked about this a lot when we talked about the birth of rock and roll about how everything was regional and then it became national. And so in that flux, you had this aspect of tape trading. Yeah, I had a radio uh, a tape that I traded with people that was a radio. It was a call-in show, and they had no delay, and they let people say awful things. Oh my god, that's why you that, traded it, right? Was it the, your yeah, hottest commodity? Was that what everybody wanted? It, what was because at some point this guy calls in and said, <laughs> "This is Harry Balford from the FCC," and they just started laughing. Uh, and he and he's basically like, "If you continue this, I'm going to have to turn your transmitter off." And they're like, oh, sure, Harry Balls. And he was like, no, I'm at your transmitter right now. And then they kept going on. And like, they took a couple like terrible calls that are really offensive. And they said, go ahead, Harry Balls. Turn off the transmitter. <laughs> so that was – it was such a – it was, and I actually found one of those DJs and like sent them a note like probably – 20 or 30 years after the fact and they're like oh yeah that was awesome so it really did happen <laughs> anyway back to our story scandinavian metal 
owes a whole lot to this setup that Brian uh, started talking about. Well, right. And that's how this story starts with uh, with the other Brian, the Brian we're going to talk about. He's in high school in Los Angeles trading tapes across the world, including with a dude in Sweden. And the guy in Sweden sends him live ACDC with a note. And he says, I threw something on the end of this tape that I think you're going to like. And that was Soundhouse tapes from Iron Maiden. And Brian will say that this is the tape that will send him headlong into British heavy metal. And pretty soon, he now is like subscribing to magazines and stuff. Like he's signing up to get sounds delivered to him and Kerrang! and stuff from Europe. So he's, he's getting in on everything that's happening in Europe just as a kid in L.A. Yeah, and he's getting deeper in this British metal scene at the end of the 70s. And one thing he is going to learn about it is the power of the compilation. So he gets a job as a buyer at a local music store, which is an awesome job to have, called Oz Records. At least at that time, it must have been. And he's bringing in all these European imports. And people start telling him that he should really pay attention to this L.A. scene that's just right there. So he starts going to shows and realizing he realizes there's interesting stuff happening right there in his backyard in L.A. And it's not hard to root for Brian in this story because he's very much was and is like you and I, right? Like just at the core, huge obsessive music dude. And this is a quote from him that I love. It says, quote, I was just a huge fan of metal, so I was really lucky that the stuff I liked, other people seemed to like. But there's nothing other than just a huge love of music at the core of this for me. I've been lucky enough that other people have liked the things that I think are great. So he starts making a fanzine for local metal called the New Heavy Metal Review. And as his frustration grows around there not being an outlet for local metal bands to be heard... He starts trying to round up money to make this compilation album. Oh, my God, everybody. This is going to get so exciting with a story that is called (laughs) Metal Massacre. Okay. Before he gets to that point, he's just becoming a local scene fixture. And I realize this is a very exciting thing, this Metal Massacre. We're going to talk about it. But... He's just becoming known in L.A. metal. And there's this amazing story about him and his buddy John, who will be one of the guys who eventually helps him make this comp dream happen. And they're at a Michael Schenker group concert. We've talked about Michael Schenker on the show. And yep. they're walking in the parking lot, and they see this guy wearing a Saxon t-shirt. And so here's Brian telling the story in his own words. So, quote, Now in 1980, no one in L.A. knew who Saxon was, let alone would be wearing a European t-shirt. So John runs up to the kid and says, Where'd you get that shirt? And he goes, Oh my God, you know who Saxon is? And he goes, Yeah. And he said, I just moved here from Denmark like two weeks ago. I didn't think anybody knew who Saxon was. No, I'm totally into it. My friend and Brian are really into it. And you got, you got to meet him. And who is the kid from Denmark? That's Lars Ulrich, because who that is. Lars freaking Ulrich. And so this is how Brian and John meet Lars, who, of course, spoiler alert, goes on to be a Metallica. These guys all become really good buddies, and there's this amazing story. I don't know if you've seen this one, but there's this amazing story of them hanging out at some point, and Lars showing Brian and John this giant drum set he bought. And... John, talking about it later in an interview, will say, he told us he was starting a band, and I thought, this guy is nuts. He lives in a townhouse in Newport Beach. Everyone's going to kick him out because that drum set is way too big for that townhouse. Right. Uh, And John even says that Lars asked him to be in the band at some point, and he told him no because he wasn't done with college and he had a really good job at the local grocery store. Right. (laughs) So he did not join what would become Metallica. But a few years into their friendship, when Lars hears Brian and John talking about making a compilation album, he begs to be on it. So Lars, but he doesn't have a, he doesn't have a freaking band yet, really. 
no, no. <laughs> the the love of like Motorhead has thrown him into like wanting to have a band, and he he <sighs> he he only has one other band member, and that guy just celebrated his 60th birthday um this week this pat in the past week and that is james hetfield yep. and you know him as the singer metallica and brian keeps asking for the song and lars keeps putting him off and they finally get to the day of the recording and <laughs> lars literally runs up the street to the studio with a recording on a cassette but for the comp, it needs to be on a quarter inch reel to reel, and that's a $50 fee. Lars doesn't have the cash. <laughs> Brian doesn't have the cash. But luckily, John saves the day, throws in 50 bucks, and the world gets to hear Hit the Lights. an amazing story like this is literally the beginning of metallica like i'm picturing young lars running up the street with his cassette in his hands and then the deflating moment where they're like we can't use a fucking cassette like we told you this dude uh but the comp version is lars on drums james on everything else except for the lead solo and they got this guy lloyd grant to play the lead solo and one more for funny story about this making this first comp they're calling in every favor that they can, right? Because they have, I mean, this is just an idea that they had, whether they were told like, hey, this scene could use a compilation and that he understands British heavy metal compilation. So he's like, we're going to try to make one. So he calls everybody he knows to do everything for free. Like we've all, we've been parts of, part of grassroots stuff sure. like this, right? Been in bands yeah. or whatever. And you're trying, you're just trying to make it happen. And so they find this girl who's been doing the typesetting on their fanzine. And she agrees, sure, whatever, dudes, I'll do the typesetting on the comp. And so it's late, and Metallica isn't an actual word, right? And so <laughs> she doesn't know how to spell it. So when she sets the type, she spells it M-E-T-T-A-L-L-I-C-A. Yeah. And I don't know if you saw the Some Kind of Monster documentary, but when they're they're in the studio at one point, they come in and someone has taken a Sharpie like written on gear and it says Metlica. So <laughs> it's like seeing that name misspelled has to be something very spinal tappish for, for them. But anyway, Metallica may be the most impressive example of, of, of this with comps. But over the next 40 years, these comps will become a these, these metal massacre comps, these metal massacre comps that Brian is putting out, Brian and John, yeah. they, they start something right. with this. Oh, yeah, yeah. So they're a huge moment for a lot of metal bands who will go on to define different corners of the genre. And out of this, Brian creates what will be called, hereforth, Metal Blade Records. Metal Blade Records. And that's how it starts, with Lars Ulrich running up the street. I like to picture him barefoot when he's running with that cassette tape. I'm sure he had shoes on. But uh, another small example of this Metal Massacre influence. I love this. In 1983, the year the Brian, whose voice you currently hear, was born, uh, the other Brian from uh, what we now know as Metal Blade Records will see a bitch. Were you a fan of bitch? No. Never saw them. <laughs> Keep he'll, moving. He'll see them perform, and they have this band opening for them that really impresses them. Bitch is an all-female metal group, by the way. just needs to be pointed sure. out. Sure. And course. so he goes backstage and asks this group opening for Bitch if they will contribute a song to the Metal Massacre number 3 comp. And that band and that comp 
That's Slayer. Yeah, that's how people hear, hear Slayer. Slayer. So this this dude's hit rate is really good early on. Metallica and Slayer. Yeah, and you can go and look at Metal Blade Records. Like, man, there's a lot of bands that came through there. There's too big of a list. Guar, Cannibal Corpse, Rat, like lots of heavy bands. Yeah, so for the most part, the label really lives up to metal, right? And its moniker. And that is why people often find it really confusing when they're told that Metal Blade Records is responsible for Metallica and for Slayer and for Cannibal Corpse and for this band from Buffalo, New York called The Goo Goo Dolls. Yes, the Goo Goo Dolls, everyone. Here's a quote from Brian Slagan when he was asked about the association with the band. Quote, they were just a punk band in Buffalo when we signed them, and we had this label where we were doing a lot of punk stuff, and you never know how bands are going to evolve, period, end quote. It's such a politically correct statement when asked that question. You, right. you never know how bands are going to evolve. Uh, it, I knew about the Goo Goo Dolls a little early, sort of. Like, so I think we've probably talked about this before, but the public library was my favorite place as a kid. And yes, I liked books, but I really liked the AV room. They had an AV room in this library that was unbelievable. The walls and walls of VHS tapes. And they had like clear plastic and wooden. Like, they clearly like built them into the library. Like, somebody came in and did this, I'm sure, as a project for the library. And so it was, you could just see all of these tapes lined up and you would walk by the AV room to get to the books, right? And so I'd be like, oh my God, I need to go in there. And they also had CDs, right? So all of these things you could borrow. And I mean, I was a kid constricted to listening to nonprofit Christian radio stations. So being within this proximity to Forbidden Fruit was absolutely intoxicating. And I couldn't check out stuff most of the time, partly because I was late to the CD game. Like for a long time, I didn't even have a CD player. But I would go and stand in that room in the library and I would flip through the discs and I would learn the names of the bands. This was legitimately something I would do. And wow. I, I, I couldn't have told you what they sounded like necessarily, but I knew their names really early. And so I'm pretty sure this is where I first learned about the dead milkman. Yeah. <laughs> I, I remember finding them in there. And it's also where I first saw a copy of an album on metal blade records called hold me up by the band the Goo Goo Dolls. Knowledge I would already have years later when this band would explode and people think would think that they were new, right? And I would be like, wait, I've, I saw that band in the library years ago. And I knew they were like this 80s punk band. I'm in love because I know you And I'm sorry I don't show you And if I find that you ain't found me People, ah, that's enough, right? Magazine ran a story on Johnny Resnick in '99 that opened with the sentence, "Quote: First off, I would like to apologize for the oversaturation of Iris." <laughs> so, I saw Don't an early iteration. The see me. Yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <clears throat> I saw an early iteration of the band in the early '90s where they were still a heavy band. And they were so good. And they did the Princes I Never Could Take the Place of Your Man, too, like when I saw them live. And it was all of it was just fantastic. Dude, listen, I recently pulled out the 1998 hit record, Dizzy Up the Girl. If you are listening and you know anything about the Goo Dolls, this might be what you know, right? If you know very little. And it's a smash. It was a smash hit. It sold a b- bajillion copies. And honestly, 
The other songs on that album, the ones that the average radio listener do- doesn't know, which is like, I mean, I think they had six singles on that record or something, so you know a lot of them, but the other ones still sound like the replacements in Husker Du, which is the big comparisons that they got early on and get in retrospect. Yeah. Right. With a lot of big hooks. And it's just been the same two dudes at the core. Robbie right? and Johnny. Robbie and Johnny. I've seen this band so many times. Coming up through radio, coming up through high school. I mean, they were big when I was in high school, so I saw them several times just as a kid. And this group has existed for literally almost as long as, as I've been alive. 40 years. And unlike uh, a lot of the bands we've chatted about recently on the show... There haven't been 90 lineup changes. There have just been four official members, these two and then two different drummers, which is the drama in its own right. But what people don't realize is that every single that has made it big in the pop world has Johnny Resnick on lead vocals. But that band splits lead vocal duties almost evenly on their records to this day between Johnny and Robbie. And people probably don't know that at all. Right. And Robbie's vocals are... Robbie was the vocalist originally. And Robbie's vocals are much more like something you'd hear from 80s Midwestern punk. They're just a little nasally and and not as fleshed out and, you know, there's not all the key changes and all that stuff. But I bring up the Goo Dolls, right? You're like, what the? why the hell are you bringing up the Goo Dolls? I bring up the Goo Goo Dolls because their connection to Brian Slagle and Metal Blade Records becomes a key part of their story that I think gets overlooked. There's a little bit of speculation here, but I would say that it is very unlikely that these guys would have ever become pop superstars if they had not initially been associated with Metal Blade Records. Yeah. But to make that claim, to to make that claim, we have to go back into the middle history of Metal Blade Records. To get this story, there's a lot you have to understand about the politics and the things that happened to Metal Blade once Slayer has has come through the doors and Metallica has come through the doors and Slagle has a functioning thing on his hands in the mid-80s. After he puts out these comps, he gets opportunities to put out albums. Right. So Slayer will enlist his help on an EP and two records. And then suddenly this is a real job for him. But for several years, it's just him and his mom's garage. And this growth happens because Brian is so connected to the L.A. scene. And when he puts out that first comp, this is like just a I love music thing. And he has to scrape all this money together and he doesn't see it as becoming anything bigger. But through putting this out, he meets a bunch of people, including these people at a company called Green World. Green World Distribution. This is Slagle talking about them. One of the distributors, though, Green World, that was based out of LA, came to me and said, we know you don't have money, but you seem like you know what you're doing. We can offer you a pressing and distribution deal. So we would pay for all the pressing and manufacturing and issuing the product if you'll bring us bands. And I thought, I don't know. That sounds like fun. (laughs) Right. So he wants to call it Skull and Crossbones. The record label, but that's taken. of course it's taken. Of course it's taken. So he has an affection for medieval stuff. He's a metalhead, so he calls it Metal Blade Records. And this this arrangement with Green World Distribution works out for a little bit. Green World will be a part of Metal Blade for about six years. They'll be associates, and at some point in all of this, they decide to start a label of their own. So. That that's Green World. They decide to start a label of their own, and they call it Enigma Records. And congratulations, that means we just connected this story to Motley Crue. We Motley have Crue just Motley made Crue it to alert. Motley Crue, everybody. <laughs> Not exactly sure how many minutes we're in, but we've made it to the crew. Oh, oh my so God. Enigma's first release was the crew's excellent 
debut <laughs> too fast. I like, for I like how you're still putting exclamation points. Excellent. I just want you to know it's very good. <laughs> it's it's not a it's kind of a poppy like there's bubblegum poppy raspberries stuff in there that's not yeah. metal. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But eventually they get into ventures with EMI and Capital. So you get Poison, Striper, the Smithereens, and the Chili Peppers. Now, Enigma has a run. Like, they have a run. And long story short, creating sort of a rival venture doesn't sit very well for, for Brian Slagle. Because what happens is these two things are now competing. But this gets sold off, and eventually Green World as a distributor will go bankrupt. So things get weird for Metal Blade, because they now don't have a distributor. But they have a track record at this point, and bigger record companies have noticed. It works the other way. Brian and Metal Blade are watching bands like Slayer do an album or two with them and then work with a major label. So here's Brian talking about it. Quote, we certainly did not want to stand in the way. The bands would always come to us and say... You know, we'd say, hey, that's a great offer. You should take it. I mean, we're a tiny label. And if you figure that there is this major label deal and there wasn't much we were going to do about it, we sorted it all out and we let the bands go. We didn't want to hurt their careers, but it also got us to the point to where we started thinking that it would be nice if we didn't have to keep losing all these bands, end quote. So when Green World goes belly up, Brian starts having conversations about getting distribution from a label and a company with a bigger footprint. So this is another quote from him. We had lost so many bands and major labels. We were kind of like, well, maybe we should go through a major so we stop losing all these bands. Like maybe we can have our cake and eat it too. And from another interview, he says, we started talking to major labels and pretty much got offered deals from everyone. We decided to go with Warner Brothers because at the time they had a great reputation as being an artist oriented label. They were in LA like we were and we really liked them. And it seemed like it made the most sense for us to do that. And just for some of our listeners, why don't we clarify what distribution means in this case? That's an excellent point, because this is one of those things where we're getting a little bit into the music business side of things, and you might be listening and be like, I don't understand how a distributor works with a label and how why, why a distributor starting a label is a, is a competitive move, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so a distributor does what it sounds like. It distributes music to retailers. So think about the 80s, right? Think about no internet. Think about Brian Slagle's job, right? Like when we mentioned Oz Records. So different distributors would form a relationship with Oz Records and tons of other stores and companies, and they would work out the specifics on getting the physical cassettes and CDs into their racks and on their shelves, right? In the old school music business structure, a label would find the artist and would fund the artist, and the distributor would go to the label and take like the big crate. Like if you just think about it really literally, like here's the big crate of music, and now they're going to take it and make sure it gets distributed to these different stores, a point of purchase, so that people can buy it. Uh, that's simplified, but that's basically it. Does that make sense? Yeah. We didn't know there was going to be math here, but sorry, everybody. <laughs> sort we of. mentioned earlier that Brian's distributor, Greenworld, started a label, Enigma. So those acts have direct access through the same people to distribution. So you can see how it would become less appealing to work with a distributor who might be too busy worrying about the bands they own already. So, right. So when Slagle talks about going to a major label, this is Warner Brothers. And through a financial arrangement, this would allow Metal Blade to have access to and presence in the same spaces as their mainstream product. So does that make sense? Like you now are able to take this Cannibal Corpse album and instead of having to go to some tiny weird place or mail order or whatever to get it, you can go to the mall and get it because the same company that's 
they it's giving you the brand new record from you know whatever big artist that that Warner Brothers had at the time is also shoveling you know at least a few copies of Cannibal Corpse into the C section at the CD store. Right, so it's a good deal for Brian, and Warner Brothers actually offers him more than just the distribution. Um, what we were getting kind of nerdy here, but it's important in the story. There's this quote I found where Brian explains how this all was actually structured. Quote, we set up a three-tier deal where where they would distribute distribute our product through the WEA system. That's Warner Brothers. Um, their second tier was that with a certain number of bands, they would help us with some marketing. And the third tier was basically a joint label deal where we would provide the records, but the whole staff would work it and market it with the priority as if it were a Warner Brothers act, and it worked out really well, end quote. Okay, okay, so we're, we're through most of the nerd shit. Uh, initially, this does exactly what it's supposed to do. So suddenly, Metal Blade artists are starting to find a wider audience. Armored Saint, <laughs> you can buy it at the mall. Fate's Warning, you can buy it at the mall. Guar, uh, did you own any of these records in the late 80s? yes. Yes and yes <laughs> to all three. Urban NBR this September in Louisville, Kentucky with Bruno Mars. The Killers. Black Keys. Brandy Carlisle. Plus Duran Duran. Billy Strings, the Black Crows, the Avid Brothers, Blondie, and so many more. Bourbon and Beyond, September 14th through 17th in Louisville, Kentucky. All passes on sale now at bourbonandbeyond.com. Something very significant happens that Brian Slagle will point to as the thing that eventually makes this Warner Brothers distribution deal a problem, though. Okay? Reading here from March 5th, 1989, the edition of the New York Times, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Time Inc. and Warner Communications... Uh, announced yesterday, which would have been March 4th, 1989, that they plan to merge, creating the largest media and entertainment conglomerate in the world. And the rocket's red glare. So suddenly, (laughs) the stakes on everything are higher, capitalism. There are more suits in the room and now more eyes watching. Okay, so... So if you're following along, this story's a little complicated, but I'm at, so young guy starts a label, gets this gets decent distribution, that thing goes bankrupt. He signs this deal with this big company to give him great distribution. It's going really well because that big company's being really nice to him and all his artists. And then that company gets bought by a giant media conglomerate. And now there's a whole bunch of people paying attention to every single move that is made because there's a lot more pressure, right? And there's two specific situations that come out of this merger directly related to rock albums that will start to sour the success and opportunity that this relationship had offered up to this point to Slagle and the and the bands on Metal Blade. And the first one actually doesn't involve Metal Blade, but it will set a precedence that Slagle gets increasingly uncomfortable with. And that is, good God, we are taking some weird turns off the interstate. That is the story of Body Count. Body, body count. count. You want to you do count. this? You want to talk about body, body count? count? Body count. Body count. Body count. Body count. <laughs> so here's the basics for you, like to talk about body count. So Sire, which is a label within Warner Brothers Group, has this band called Body Count. Now, we could do a whole episode on body count. Yes, yes, we might could. might make sense. Um just know if you don't know that Ice T, who you might know from Law and Order, ironically, like, very in, ironically, in case, you might know from Law and Order. In case you don't know him from hip hop, 
so Ice T and his high school buddies decide to get a, a metal band, and they were, you know, rehearsing and they were looking ways to be shocking one day. And Ice T was jamming one day to Psycho Killer by the Talking Heads, and he gets the side to make a song about corrupt cops, and they call it Cop Killer. I love that David is- Byrne was indirectly. I'm responsible for cop killer. Nobody ever brings that up. Nobody no. ever brings that up. No, no. He doesn't get brought into it. It's just body count. <laughs> so this is simplifying the story a bit, but let's just say timing's everything. And this song drops 30 days before the Rodney King verdict in 92. Jesus all Christ. Four, if you don't know anything about that, for Pete's sake, all four officers in that case were acquitted of assault and three of the four are acquitted of using excessive force and Los Angeles caught on fire. And what actually happens is not that Warner Brothers makes body count back away from the song or the record, but the public outcry is so much Ice-T eventually decides to have the song pulled from the record because he thinks it's distracting from their larger career goals like playing Lollapalooza and playing Cop Killer for all the crowds at yep. Lollapalooza. Yeah. Anyway. So I, I think the other episode we have to do eventually about all this will be about this moment, this exact moment around the Rodney King in the early 90s around, you know, this conversation of quote-unquote gangster rap. And specifically, Interscope Records. You have Republican presidents getting involved. You have Tupac. And in this particular case with Ice-T, there's that famous story of Charlton Heston reading lyrics from another song on the body count <laughs> record out loud to the board. Oh my God, that's a real thing that happened. Charlton Heston, yes. Moses from the Ten yeah. Commandments, yeah. had to read what it was like the KKK girlfriend song or whatever. It was like something else. Um, it's it's my KKK girl. Yeah. Oh Luckily, God. he didn't read the lyrics to Evil Dick, which is worse. <laughs> so, needless to say, oh, it's it's cake. It's sorry for everything. It's the KKK B word. Oh, it's that's just, right. That's right. That's what it was. Uh, yeah. So Brian Slagle, if you see any interviews with him from the last few years, you will hear him mention at some point the phrase, then the iced tea thing happened. Right. So this is just like shorthand now for him when talking about the history of his label to say, I saw what fighting for artistic freedom was going to look like inside a corporation this big. This was my first big indicator that everything was going to be uphill from here on out. Yeah, and within a year, Slagle gets up and close and personal with this whole concept. I can't believe in the same episode, we get to talk about the Goo Goo Dolls, a band I love. We get to talk about Slayer, Metallica. We've we've shoehorned Motley Crue in here. Uh, we've now talked about Body Count, and we're about to talk about motherfucking Guar. Did you own Toilet Earth? <clears throat> Did I own Toilet Earth? Yeah. Yes, Brian. <laughs> I own Toilet Earth. <laughs> of course. <laughs> okay, depending on what you read, it seems that... I I, I don't know if you know anything about this because I know you know more about Gore than I do. They were actually a really big selling point for Warner Brothers to take on this partnership with Metal Blade because they were growing this cult fan base that Warner Brothers wanted to try to figure out how to monetize even more, right? And when they were preparing for this particular record, the This Toilet Earth record, they had plans to make a movie and so Warner Brothers was was juice in the wheel saying, we're going to help you make this movie bigger and better and get it into the world. And then <laughs> they deliver the album to the label. Yeah. 
Yeah, they were really excited about this Partridge Family movie that they were going to make. <laughs> so here's a quote from Slagle. This is so amazing. Thanks for joining us for this episode, everybody. Quote, after the Time Warner merger, uh, they had implemented something. They had a guy whose job was to look at all the lyrics for all the records that they Imagine put out and decide if they guy. were okay. Right. This is the Time Warner lyrics guy. One of the first things we put out was a Guar record. It was Toilet Earth from March of 94. And they said, no, you've got to take this song called Baby Dick Fuck off the record. And you've got to change the lyrics to this song. I was just freaked out because I was like, I'm not going to tell any artist they have to change their lyrics. It's not right. I ended up having a meeting with them and saying, look, if this is going to be the case, I don't think I can be here anymore. And to their credit, they weren't happy with the whole situation either. They agreed and we moved on. It kind of ended a bit rough, but it was awesome to work with some really famous music people. That was kind of fun. I love these Brian Slagle interviews. And there's a book, too. There's a Slagle book that he has written in the last couple of years. But he just really sounds like a guy who happened into this sort of by accident and really loves what he does and has acquired the business sense as he has gone along. And so he's making these decisions based way less on like what's going to be good for the company in the long term and much more from the gut. And so this is just the thing where he's like, I don't want to do this. Like, I don't want to continually have to fight you guys over what we're going to point out because I started a metal label. Like, this was the whole thing, right? So here's where we return to our boys in the Goo Goo Dolls. Now, the timeline gets a little muddy, and some of the court cases and specific outcomes seem to have been reached privately, so the specifics are scarce. But within the next year, while Slagle is looking for a different distro option other than Warner Brothers... The work that Warner Brothers has started to do with the Goo Goo Dolls, because remember there's the three tiers, right? We talked about this, the three tiers. So they're getting like the really good tier where Warner Brothers is, is they see some potential in the Goo Goo Dolls and they're pushing them pretty hard. And the Goo Goo Dolls start getting some traction. On my 14th birthday, uh, March 14th of 1995, the band will release a an album called A Boy Named Goo. And this will change their lives because this album has a song on it called Name. And by the by the way, if you guys didn't know, this song didn't really break until Kevin Weatherly at K-Rock in L.A. goes rogue and plays the song. It's not the single. Well, it's not the single because it's an acoustic. It's like written in an alternate tuning on an acoustic guitar, played with like one finger. And it is uh, totally different than most of the stuff, though. I would say if you look in their catalog, there are songs sort of like that. There's Girl Right Next to Me on Superstar Car Wash and some other things that predate Boy Named Goo that are similar to this. There was always a little, there was like a Johnny Resnick ballad on most of these albums. But this, this does really well. And as things heat up, they're playing Letterman and hearing themselves on the radio, the Goo Goo Dolls, that is. And suddenly they realize something. Cue the theme music. <laughs> this is becoming very uh, regular on this show. Uh, they aren't getting royalty checks. They're not getting paid. 
No. Once they get a lawyer, these numbers start coming out that estimate that over the course of the eight years, they had been on Metal Blade, they hadn't cleared $100,000 total. That's insane. There was this $6,000 a year per member figure that I saw in research too. Now, I, I, I always go and look and say, like, what is that in 2023? That's like twelve grand. So they're making... <laughs> They're making twelve grand a year. I'm, I know I, I'm not sure if that had been written into the contract as a salary condition or what, but basically these guys end up in this classic situation where they are getting very famous and they are very broke. Yeah, and they sue Metal Blade. Hey, suing people. Here we go, everybody. They sue Metal Blade. <laughs> Warner Brothers sues them. Because, That's right because <laughs> they have to deliver at least three more albums to Warner that they would have a stake in and it's just a mess. So if you try to research this, you're going to find a bunch of stories about the beginning of the lawsuit and nothing about the end of it. So I was very confused and I spent a lot of time trying to track this down because it's fascinating to me that this just sort of disappears. And I found one interview from 2001 with Brian Slagle from metal blade and this online publication called metal update. And he's talking about how they got from War- how they got from the Warner Brothers deal after the Guar debacle. So Guar happens, and then they get themselves released from Warner Brothers. And the way Slagle has told this in other interviews is that, as you sort of heard earlier, he just went to them and was like, "Listen, if you're going to do this all the time, and I can't put out albums called This Toilet Earth with Baby Dick Fuck on it." I don't know if I want to be here anymore, right? And that's just sort of how the story goes. And they're like, oh, he's not there anymore and everything's... But obviously more than that had to happen. So this is this quote buried in this one interview from 2001. So we went to the two guys who ran Warner Brothers who were phenomenal music people and who really were not happy about the situation at all. They ended up even leaving Warner Brothers soon after we did. And I told them that this was not going to work. I wasn't going to tell bands what they could and could not say, and I wasn't going to change the lyrics. So maybe it was best if we parted ways. They were fine. They were completely classy and totally cool. Okay, so that's what we've heard up to this point and what he has insinuated in other interviews. Here's the interesting part that I only found here. Quote, we ended up having the Goo Goo Dolls stay there. We ended up getting a great distribution deal with R.E.D. And we started getting back to where we should have been, which is just being a really good independent label. Good for Brian, right? I mean, it's it's nice how this turns out, but I got really hung up on this phrase, we ended up having the Goo Goo Dolls stay there. So again, messy timelines, some seemingly private settlements, and not a lot of transparency on the specifics. But here's what I think. Yes. I think the Goo Goo Dolls become a bargaining chip. So Metal Blade gets clear of their relationship uh, with Warner Brothers and can find a better distro deal. Metal Blade reaches whatever settlement is needed with the Goo and then can pass them on to a much bigger entity who is actively working them already. And it's a win-win. Let us out. We'll give you the Goo Goo Dolls. And they are just the band who's saying name until 1997 when they get handpicked to write a song for a new Warner Brothers movie. <laughs> Thank you for underlining that for us. <laughs> called City of Angels. This was what Guar thought would happen for them. Synergy. 
Like, it's literally how it was pitched to Guar, was we're going to help you distribute the movie you want to make, but they aren't the ones who get it. The Goo Goo Dolls get it. And that song, Iris, will change the trajectory of that band forever. Yeah. If you've ever seen uh, Johnny sing this on Howard Stern, where there's a bunch of uh, ladies of the night singing all around him, you realize... That changed the trajectory of his career forever. Sorry to mention that. Here's a here's a quote from Johnny Resnick from a 2019 interview. Quote, we've been at Warner Brothers since 1990. We've been through 27 presidents and 5,000 staff members. It's like we've been here longer than anybody. I mean, had we actually had a job at that record company, we could retire and have a pension. We outlasted all of them in quote. I mean, this is an amazing quote in the context of this story because they've never left Warner Brothers. They've been on two labels, Metal Blade and Warner Brothers. And if my theory is true, Metal Blade doesn't stay Metal Blade without getting and then giving up the Goo Goo Dolls. And Goo Goo Dolls don't become Goo Goo Dolls without Metal Blade surrendering them to Warner Brothers. It's a fascinating way to think about this story. That these yes. two things depend on each other, even though they seem like polar opposites. Yes, and just remember that the Goo Goo Dolls, that band with that song that you love, were label mates with Slayer and Guar. <laughs> I love it. It's, it is a beautiful story of corporate synergy and capitalism. Synergy, <laughs> corporate synergy. <laughs> and, I mean, let, let me just tell you this. I stand the Goo Goo. I always have. I've always loved them. But in in putting this episode together, I pulled out a bunch of old stuff and was like, God, these guys have been really good for a really long time. But you've brought up that if you go back to some of their older stuff where they were covering prints and they were doing I mean, just some wacky stuff early on, uh, it is, it's really, really a good time. And they were a great. They were a great band. They were a great and, rock band, and they're like very good. If you band. get the chance to see them now, go see them because these guys have been playing music together forever. And so that core uh, partnership between Robbie and Johnny is really interesting. And and you can read about it. They've been pretty transparent. Robbie and Johnny have had their issues, but they've kept it together like a marriage. Like they know that this is the thing that they're doing, and they've done it for this long, and they're going to figure it out. And they've had their own individual. Uh, opportunities and Robbie was running a label out of Buffalo for a while just to sign bands he liked and he signed Shonen Knife at some point because he found out they didn't have a label and he brought them in and put their stuff out. Wow. Yeah, That's I mean, he it, and there's a great Robbie story. I think it's buried in the show notes somewhere from this random interview he did a few years ago where he... They were asking him something about like how he keeps the magic after all this time in the music industry and he was like, well, so there was a time where I could got shown a knife on my label and I couldn't believe I'd done it. And then they called me and like something had happened to their, their van driver. Like the guy who was going to drive them for a U.S. leg of their tour. And so he's like, cool, no problem, man. I'm in between records with the goo and we're not touring. And so he just got in the van and drove shown knife for, for weeks around yeah. the U S as their driver slash awesome. sort of proto manager. And he was like this, he goes, it was such a high. Because I was feeling that feeling from like 1987 again, where, you know, I was trying to be Bob Mould and, and you know, pretend like I was uh, the guy in the replacements. And, you know, it was great. 
So I, they, they're just a fascinating group uh, to listen to and to check out and to see what's happened to them and understand next time you hear a song when you're getting your teeth drilled at the dentist's office, uh, you know, you, you can... You can after the Novocaine wears off, you can explain that they are hardcore. Yeah, go go deep back into the catalog if you haven't listened to on your streaming services, and you'll be so if you have no idea, you'll be so surprised. It's a good and time. Pleasantly surprised because of the great rock band. They just kind of hit it by accident. They did. Uh wow, this was a fun one. If you have a letter for us, it's we are the story guys at gmail.com. We'll dig into stuff for you, obviously, as we have proven today. We it, you know, it may it may be quite a while ride. We may talk about Guar and Motley Crue and Slayer and Body Count and Johnny Resnick all in one episode if we can. Um but it's we are the story guys at yes. gmail com and remember we've got your chance to go to bourbon and beyond music festival that's happening Woo-hoo. in september not that far away just a little over a month uh that's going to be a lot of fun in our hometown of louisville kentucky blondie duran duran bruno mars brandy the carlisle killers. the killers a whole bunch more uh all you have to do is hit the show notes sign up to win tickets by telling us which of those people or anybody else on the lineup you would want to have some bourbon with we talk about bourbon a lot in this town you'll learn that when you visit and um, and you could yeah you could be on your way with a four day four days of music um, pass for that uh, so anything else what, what should people keep doing until next time Murdoch make sure and keep telling stories rock and roll bedtime stories is a story guys production the show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger get more stories hear more podcasts and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com copyright boy have we got stories productions all rights reserved